4. It's in the back of your hymnal Psalter combo. If you'd like to turn there, it'll be a slightly different translation than the one I'm using. But it will still get the job done. Please join with me in prayer before we begin. <clears throat> o High King of Heaven, we come before thee this night, Lord, grateful to be counted among thy elect, Lord, to dwell in thy presence, even as we seek to sit under the preaching of the word, Lord. O oh, Father, as we draw near to thee through thy Son, by the power of thy Holy Spirit, in prayer, even now, Lord, we ask for thy comfort, that thou would remind us of who we are in Christ and in him alone. God, without thee, we can do no thing. But in Christ, we are kept sure by the promises which thou hast given us in the covenant of grace. Lord, help us to not be doctrine learners, but Christ seekers, people who dwell in thy presence. Let us not be known for how astute we are in doctrine, but let us be known for the holes in our knees as people that dwell before thee in prayer. Lord, that thou would equip us and help us in all our endeavors, that thou would cause us to hunger for thee and for thee alone. God, that thou wouldst help us even now. Lord, help thou me to preach thy word, to preach from this catechism as a point from which to launch and point to thy glory, and not as an end in itself. O Lord, send us not on a fool's errand this night, but may it be profitable to our souls by the power of thy Holy Spirit, O Father, please. Lord, so many attack from every side. But they are nothing. Their voices are lost in the wind when we look to thee. May thy son and thy word be lifted up in our hearts and our lives. In Jesus' name, I pray these things to thee. Amen. Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 4. Questions 9 through 11. Question 9. Doth not God then do injustice to man by requiring from him in his law that which he cannot perform? Answer. Not at all. For God made man capable of performing it. But man, by the instigation of the devil and his own willful disobedience, deprived himself and all his posterity of those divine gifts. <clears throat> Question 10. Will God suffer such disobedience and rebellion to go unpunished? Answer. By no means, but is terribly displeased with our original as well as actual sins, and will punish them in his just judgment temporally and eternally. As he hath declared, Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things, which are written in the book of the law to do them. Question 11. Is not God then also merciful? Answer. God is indeed merciful, but also just. Therefore, his justice requires that sin, which is committed against the most high majesty of God, be also punished with extreme, that is, with everlasting punishment of body and soul. Dear congregation, tonight we reach the end of the catechism section, the first section of the misery of man. And before we start the section, which is the next section of man's deliverance, which is the longest section in the catechism, our instructor does wish to drive home even further a knowledge, a view of the depths of man's wickedness, his miserable condition and state. Let us notice three things tonight in our 
catechism questions broken up per question. Number one, let us see man's accountability for sin. Number two, let us see man's punishment for sin. And number three, let us see God's mercy toward man. First, man's accountability for sin. The law. We looked at the law in the previous Lord's days. The law, with all of its penalties, all of its requirements, and the penalties for breaking those laws is justly binding upon all of us, without exception, notwithstanding our inability to perform that which it requires. So we are bound to keep it, but we are unable to do so. Yet the penalties for breaking that which we cannot keep is still binding upon us. We are accountable. Man is accountable for his breaking of God's holy law. This is seen in question 9. In the answer, doth not God then do injustice to man by requiring from him in his law that which he cannot perform? Answer, not at all. For God made man capable of performing it, but man, by the instigation of the devil and his own willful disobedience, deprived himself and all his posterity of those divine gifts. So in Lord's Day 2, the second Lord's Day in question 5, we learned that man can, as the instructor said, in no wise, by no means is he able to keep the law which God requires of him. And the reason he gives is for by nature, the instructor says, man is prone to hate God and his neighbor. It's a desperate condition. So man, since his fall into sin with Adam, is born As Ephesians 2, verse 1 says, dead to God in trespasses and sins, and is now, by nature, at enmity against God, as Romans 8, 7 says. And spiritually, all men are born foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving diverse lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful, and hating one another, as Titus 3, 3 says. So, if this is the case of man, he's dead. He's an enemy with God by nature. He's foolish, he's disobedient, he's broken and corrupted and destroyed spiritually by nature. How then is it not injustice on the part of God to require of man that which he by nature is unable to keep? It's a great question. It's a great question, I'm sure one that many Christians are asked, and especially Calvinistic and Reformed Christians are asked this question frequently. How can God send someone to hell who he has uh, elected, reprobated, passed over for the purpose of destruction and glorifying himself and the destruction of that sinner in hell for eternity. How can that person be held accountable for those sins which he's predestined to do? We can ask this question a lot. Or maybe it's put this way. Is God not punishing the innocent in doing so? Is he not punishing just an innocent person? They can't help it. They're born this way, right? They're born in sin. They're born unable to keep the law, and yet God holds them accountable and punishes them for not holding, for not fulfilling the requirements of the law. So is God not punishing the innocent when he does this? I mean, we would not punish a person who was born blind for not being able to see, right? Is God less just than us? Are we more just than God? We have a better sense of what's just and unjust than God? That question assumes so. But we can answer these objections briefly in two ways. First, we must remember that God can do as he pleases. He can do as he pleases. He owes us no answer. You've heard people say, maybe you're ministering to someone, sharing the gospel with someone, or you have a family member. Uh, I've even heard professing Christians say this. When I get to heaven, I'm going to have a word with God about this, 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 and this. Really? He's going to give, you're going to put him on court and you will be the judge and he must answer you. As Paul Washer has put it, no, you will melt before his holy wrath and purity like a tiny wax figurine does before a blast furnace. That is a blasphemous notion. He owes us no answer. The psalmist says in Psalm 115, 3, but our God is in the heavens. He hath done whatsoever 
he hath pleased. The Apostle Paul, dealing with a similar objection in Romans 9, states, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shalt the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? Sarcastically mocking the rebellious sinner who asks such a question. Second way we can answer it, such objections we must understand assume an innocence of man that doesn't exist. It assumes an innocence of man that isn't there. It is indeed true that neither us nor our good and merciful God would condemn a man born blind for not being able to see. That is true. But man is not some innocent bystander. He's not a victim to whom these injustices are being done to. He's not suffering under some justice and punishment that he doesn't deserve. He's not a victim. It is true that man's nature is corrupt. It's completely and totally corrupt. That's the Calvinistic doctrine of total depravity. It is true that man is totally depraved, totally corrupt. He can do no spiritual good whatsoever. None seek God. None do good. No, not one. None are righteous. He can do no spiritual good whatsoever. And he can in no wise keep the law of God, as the instructor told us. As we saw last week, after the fall of Adam, our whole spiritual being, our soul, our essence, who we are, has been thrown into chaos and is in need of total spiritual renovation as a whole in every part of us. We need renewing, regeneration, reviving, vivification, as the Puritans put it. I said that quickly. I'll say it again. Vivification. Our nature is truly corrupted by sin. That is true. Before the fall, man was created good. We saw that in the previous Lord's days. Man was created good. He was created with the ability of keeping God's law. He was, as the instructor says, capable of performing its requirements. He was created that way. Yet man was also capable of sinning. He was potest pecare, as the scholastics put it. Able to sin. Potest pecare. Since that dreadful fall, however, man is non potest, non pecare, unable not to sin. He's not able not to sin. Man's original state of uprightness is destroyed and has fallen into complete corruption in every part. That is the clear teaching of the scriptures and what our instructor has led us through in the previous Lord's days. Now, again, to address that false notion of an innocent man suffering under the wrath of a God who made him simply for hell. Had God created man without eyes, to use an analogy, had God created man without eyes, it is true that it would have been wrong for him to have required man to admire the creation around him. But if man being born with the ability to see, being born with the ability to see, had then willfully deprived himself of this ability by tearing his eyes out of his head, man would not be freed from the dutiful requirement of admiring creation. Why? Because his, his inability to do so would have been due to a willful choice to deprive himself of the means of obeying this command. If he tears his eyes out, it's his fault that he then cannot fulfill that requirement. We also, in our laws, here in this country even, hold a drunken man culpable for the sins and the wickedness he does while he's drunk. Well, I was drunk. I, it was inebriated. I didn't know what I was doing under the influence of alcohol. That is true, probably. In many cases, that is true. However, you still did it. You broke the law. doesn't matter what you willfully chose to do that st- stopped you from being able to not do it. You still did it. So God created man upright, good, and with the ability to keep his law. But again, I keep driving this phrase home, and I want to stick in your head. But man deprived himself of those graces and that ability, willfully and deliberately, and thus is still justly responsible for the consequences and penalties and judgment of his sins. 
though man is able only to commit evil deeds, God will yet, as Romans 2.6 says, render to every man according to his deeds. So man's current inability not to sin does not excuse his actual present committal of sins that he does. Right? Our hearts are corrupted. We are prone to sin. We can actually do nothing but sin now. However, that doesn't do away with the willful committal of sins that we do presently. Man, in his current state, is in a cursed state under the law of God. Both our instructor and the scriptures tell us. For being unable to keep the law, man only sins against it and is cursed. Galatians 3.10, the instructor quotes that. Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. Let's also notice that God is man's creator and lawgiver. And thus, God is man's only rightful judge. His only rightful judge. God is good. God is upright. God is holy. God is just. And he will thus by no means clear the guilty. Exodus 34, 7. He will punish the wicked. For they are guilty of breaking his law. It's as simple as that. Again, the objection. Well, isn't it wrong for God to hold man accountable for the sins which he can only by nature commit? Must God then lower, we can respond this way, must God then lower the demands of his law and accommodate it to sinful, fallen flesh? Does he need to accommodate and change and alter and amend his law to accommodate fallen nature no sane person could ever argue in such a manner if we were to enact such a standard as that then we must conclude that the more wicked a person is the more lackadaisical the law should be so the more wicked you are the more grace you get as far as the law you're not judged severely the more wicked you are the less pure and exacting the law by which he is judged should be. That would be the necessary conclusion of such an argument. However, this is simply to give license and indeed blessing to sinners as they sin. That's unjust. Now, it is not the fault of God. It is not the fault of God, nor is it the fault of God's law, but that of the sinner. That the sinner comes under the penalties of sin. It's not the fault of God or his law that sinners are punished for sinning, but it is the fault of the sinner that sinners are punished for sinning. Man has moral inability, and yet this inability is of the will, our instructor tells us. He has chosen to be unable. We, as Adam's descendants, as we've looked through in the previous Lord's Days and as addressed also in this Lord's Day, We, as Adam's descendants, are born with the inability to keep God's law because our federal head, Adam, fell. We are born in a state of sin originally, and by nature we are corrupted. We're born sinful and with a corrupt nature. Romans 5.12, we went through that last week. Man is born this way now. Yet... To this sinful state that we're naturally born into, we add actual committed sins. All of us, daily, every day. So it's not even that you're just being judged and condemned on you because of original sin. That is true. Unfair, which it isn't. You still commit actual sins daily. Daily. We cannot do that which is good and just because we are so desirous of doing wrong. That is our state by nature. In the flesh. Are we to be thought innocent if we sin of our own accord? That's absurd. By no means. Thus, God cannot clear us of guilt. We must be held accountable for our sins because God is just. Because God is righteous. Because God is merciful and loving, he must condemn sinners to hell. Truly, these are hard words. Flesh and blood cannot bear them. But to the spiritual man, the one regenerate, 
the one who hath the Spirit of God dwelling within him. These things are true, and they point us to Christ. The very fact that we are saved in Christ justifies God's act of condemning sinners. Why? As all have fallen in and with the first man, Adam, so too believers are raised with the second man, Christ. In Christ, the believer is justified. In Adam, he is condemned. A commentator that I've been using as I prepare, who wrote a commentary, adapted his sermons into a commentary on the Heidelberg Catechism, American Reform guy named George Bethune in the 1800s wrote this, quote, By the righteousness and expiation of Christ in the believer's stead, he is pardoned, he is accepted, and he is rewarded. The blessing comes on Christ, the head, first, then on every member of the church, which is his body. And the strength enabling the believer to do right is not his own, but the grace of the Holy Ghost, the Spirit of Christ dwelling in him. The fact that we are fallen in Adam with all of the consequences of his sin on us, which causes us to do actual sin, and that corrupted fallen state parallels the second man, Adam, the, the, the better Adam, Christ. So we have Adam, then we have Christ. And that Christ, in him, all the rewards, all the blessings are upon us, and they flow to us. And in regeneration, just like from Adam, our sin nature then causes us to sin outwardly, so too by the Holy Spirit regenerating us, that Holy Spirit then gives us grace to obey, to follow, to love, to serve, to worship. It's a perfect parallel. Now, the best way, in my opinion, to conclude this first point of man's accountability is this. Let every believer here, let every believer here ask themselves, if they do not feel that it is in their own nature that they're utterly unable to obey God. Think about it for a second. Think about the sins you commit, especially before you're a believer, before you're regenerate, and ask yourself, it isn't, is it not of my own nature that I am unable to obey? And also, ask yourself, whether you know it to be true or not, that as Philippians 2.13 says, it is God who worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. I think that by such inquiry, asking yourselves these questions, the true Christian will acknowledge that he has experienced the doctrine put forward in this catechism and sees it to be true. If you look inwardly at your own nature, you see that in your flesh dwelleth no good thing, and that only inability to obey God and only the desire to sin against him dwelleth there. But that as you have been regenerate by the Holy Spirit, you now have the Spirit within you that wages war against the flesh. And you will put to death, you will mortify the members of your flesh by the power of the Holy Spirit. And you now have an internal desire to obey him. And you know that this does not come from you but from God. Thus, your experience testifies to the truth thereof. Second point, man's punishment for sin. So we looked at the fact that he's accountable. Now we're looking at the fact that he will be punished for it. Question 10 of the Catechism asks this, Will God suffer such disobedience and rebellion to go unpunished? Meaning God suffer, will he allow, will he allow such disobedience and rebellion to go unpunished? <clears throat> Answer. By no means. But is God is terribly displeased with our original as well as actual sins and will punish them in his just judgment temporally and eternally. As he hath declared, cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things, which are written in the book of the law to do them. Let us notice that our punishment is twofold. Our punishment is twofold. Namely, temporal and eternal. Why? Because God is terribly displeased with our sins, the instructor tells us. 
and therefore he will, quote, punish them in his just judgment. God is terribly displeased, it says, with our sins, both original and actual. And in fact, not only with our sins, but with us in our nature. Psalm 5.5. How many Mother's Day sermons do you hear on that? On Psalm 5.5. Psalmist says about God, Thou hatest all workers of iniquity. So it's not just our sin, but us that God is terribly displeased with and that he will punish. You've heard God loves the sinner and hates the sin and that we're supposed to then love the sinner, love the sin. Uh, A follow-up question to that is, does God send sin to hell or does he send sinners to hell? He sends sinners to hell. He does not send sin to hell. His wrath is revealed from heaven, as we read earlier, Romans 1.18. His wrath is revealed from heaven upon sinners, even now in the temporal state. The tsunamis that come. The terrorist planes that fly into buildings and kill 3,000 people. The wars, the famines, the plagues. All these things are sent from God's good, wise, and holy hands to punish sinners. Disease that people suffer with. All sorts of things are sent to punish sinners in this temporal state. And probably more frightening, more terrible than any of those punishments I just listed is the fact that God gives over sinners to their own sin and to their own wickedness. They are punished with plagues, disasters, and wars, but even worse, the plagues and war of their own heart and their own flesh. All people meet with death in this life, temporally. Everyone dies. God told Adam that in the day that he ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he would die. And die he did. And all of his posterity with him would die. And die they have, and die they shall. Sinners are cursed in their body and cursed in their soul. So it's both temporal and eternally. Temporally and eternally that we are punished. More terrifying than these temporal punishments that we touched on briefly. The ones we meet with in this life are the eternal punishments for sin. The eternal punishments for sin which sinners meet with in the life to come. Jesus told his disciples and thus us with them in Matthew 10, 28. When they were to suffer persecution, he said this. And fear not them which kill the body but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him, which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. That's a great encouragement for Christians, but it is also terrifying. It's terrifying to the unbeliever. And it should also terrify us that that is the state of sin. But it should cause us to be grateful. Gratitude. Remember the catechism's structure is guilt, grace, gratitude. So we see our guilt, we look at the grace of Christ, and we are grateful for it. And we live in praise and honor to him for it. But God will destroy both soul and body in hell. Matthew 10, 28. That is a far more severe punishment, a far more terrifying and terrible punishment than simply the sufferings we endure in this life. What are we to do? with the false argument that some of you may have heard. I have friends who went to seminary, and though they are seemingly orthodox and many other aspects of their Christianity, have adopted this one view of hell. And it's becoming a more and more popular view with the new Calvinist movement, with reformed people, so-called. It's an argument that says that sinners will be annihilated after their death. It's a false doctrine. The doctrine of annihilationism. There's usually two forms that at death, sinners, the wicked who are unregenerate, are annihilated. They're wiped out of existence. So God has dealt with them. He destroyed them. Then there's a second view of it that's they, in the, tempor- in the, the temporary state, the intermediate state in hell, their soul suffers and dies the death there for a time. And after that punishment at the resurrection, when they are then cast into the second death, And the eternal flame, that's when they die. They are cast into the flame and they're gone. Both 
versions of annihilationism are heresy and they're false doctrine. It is usually put forward as an emotional argument, though not always. Some people think they can do an exegetical argument for it, and we will look at that. But it's usually put forward as an emotional argument. People don't want to deny hell altogether, because obviously you can't. It's right there in the scriptures. So they're going to, God wouldn't be so cruel as to make sinners suffer forever for temporal sins. We commit some sins here in this life, and then we suffer forever? How is that fair? How could a good God make someone suffer forever? It's a little bit overkill, literally. Is it not? If one of you guys stole a penny out of my pocket and I beat you to a pulp with a baseball bat, would that, would that be overkill, right? So people are trying to make that same argument about God. It would, it's, it's not in his nature to punish a sinner who sinned a temporary sin for all eternity. Something very wrong with that argument, though. I would agree if that were the case. Possibly, I'd be more inclined to agree. But since we know that man is immortal, and that man can only be born again of the Spirit, as Jesus says in John 3.8, it is true that man can never stop sinning. So if there was, he sins in this life, when he dies, and his soul is separated from his body, he stops sinning, and he wishes he could be saved And then God punishes him for all eternity. I understand that argument more. But it doesn't line up with scripture. Man doesn't stop sinning after death. Thus, even after his physical death, man never stops sinning. C.S. Lewis, as many interesting views as he had, I think got it correctly when he said, quote, the door to hell is locked from the inside. The door to hell is locked from the inside. Why? To keep God out. To keep God out. And you've heard... The saying, everyone wants to go to heaven, they just don't want God to be there when they arrive. Same is true. The sinner, the unregenerate sinner would rather go to hell where he can be separated in his mind on what he thinks now, can be separated from God. Though we know that the psalmist tells us that God is even in Sheol, than to dwell with God in heaven. Some also argue more exegetically and not so emotionally, saying that this word eternal does not mean forever. They point to Matthew 25, 46, where Jesus says, And the wicked shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. So everlasting and eternal are the words being examined here. They say eternal or everlasting doesn't mean everlasting. It doesn't mean eternal. It just means a long period of time. Kind of like what people do with the Genesis days, Yom, that it, it doesn't refer to a 24-hour day, but it's a period of time. People try to do this with the same thing with aeonion in Greek. It's an age. It's a, it's a time frame. They point to that verse and say that that's what those words mean. This argument falls apart very quickly, however, by rereading the verse once. The wicked shall go away into everlasting punishment. Let's, just, let's translate how they want to Translate, and the wicked shall go away into a temporary punishment, but the righteous into a temporary life. Falls apart, doesn't it? If the wicked only suffer punishment for a period of time, then the righteous should only expect to experience life for a period of time. Then what? We're not sure what then happens to them. But it's interesting that though the King James translates it everlasting and eternal, the the same word in Greek is used. Aeonion. So they both mean the same thing. Everlasting, eternal. I mean, even in English, you'll get those two words. They mean the same thing. Everlasting and eternal. What's the difference? Nothing. Same word is used for both. So let's look at hell a little bit more. Mark 9, if you want to turn there. Mark 9. Sorry, in verse 43, going through 48. Mark 9. 43 through 48. Jesus says, And if thy hand offend thee, cut it off. It is better for thee to enter life maimed than having two hands to go into hell into the fire that never shall be quenched, where their worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. And if thy foot offend thee, cut it off. It is better for thee to enter halt into life than having two feet to be cast into hell 
and to the fire that never shall be quenched. Where their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. And if thine eye offend thee, pluck it out. It is better for thee to enter into the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire. Where their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. Fire is not quenched. It means eternal. It does not stop. There is no end. The fire is not quenched. The worm does not die. Again, we've heard it talked about, and it is true. Jesus is referring to the Valley of Hinnom. My wife and I have been there. We've been to the Valley of Hinnom right outside Jerusalem. It was a trash pit that they used to put all their trash, all their refuse, all their dead bodies, everything like that then was burned. The, the people who were cursed and didn't deserve a Jewish burial, they were cursed and, and thrown into this, this pit, this trash pit. And it's the same place where the Israelites earlier on in their history committed grievous blasphemy and sin against God by sacrificing their children to Molech, causing them to pass through the fire. They offered burnt offerings to Molech of their children by aborting them into the flames. And this is a cursed little valley, a little ditch, a pit that they have filled with trash and refuse and cursed things. And a a seemingly eternal fire burns there. The smoke billows up day and night. The flames never go out. The maggots writhe. So he's talking about that. That's the word he's saying is Gehenna. The Valley of Hinnom. It's like that, except it doesn't stop. That's Jesus' point. It doesn't stop. And all of the wicked shall be cast there. It is far better for you to go into heaven limping, he says, than to have both feet firmly planted in that trash pile. It's better to have very poor sight, in fact, missing an eye in heaven to admire its beauties slightly blinded than to see the crisp picture of hell for eternity. However, let's also remember this. Heaven is not the goal. Heaven is not the goal. It's not where we should be looking. Being with Christ in heaven is not where we should be looking as believers. Why? Why do I say that? Because that's the intermediary state. That's not even the end. It's where our bodies and our souls are separated. Our body goes into the dirt. Our soul is united with Christ. And that will be a blessed, blessed time. But that's not the end goal. That's not the last place we're looking. We're looking to the new heavens and the new earth after the resurrection of both the wicked and the righteous, the just and the unjust, are reunited soul and body and are then placed into eternal bliss or eternal torment in the second death that the wicked will experience. We will only experience the first death as believers, not the second death. So that is the goal, is the new heavens, the new earth, where we dwell and reign with Christ forever. We often just think it's heaven. It's your get-out-of-hell-free card and go to heaven. No, there's a far worse punishment awaiting the wicked. They are immediately cast out of the presence of God, immediately into the flame with the rich man. But one day they will be resurrected, united with their bodies, and then in body and soul, as the catechism tells us, they will be tormented. Because man, in his essence, is both body and soul. We do not believe in a platonic dualism. The body and soul are different and are at war. There, man, in its essence, is body and soul, and he will be punished eternally in that state of body and soul. God will pour out his vengeance completely upon them. Now, third, last point, God's mercy toward man. So look at the fact that he's accountable for his sin, his inability does not excuse him, that God will certainly punish him in both body and soul eternally for sin. Now, let's look at God's mercy toward man. Question 11. The instructor anticipating someone coming to this catechism. Question 1. Beautiful, amazing, giving us hope. And then <laughs> questions 2 through, uh, through 10, kind of a downer. Kind of a downer. So he anticipates somebody then asking, but wait, is not God then also merciful? Answer, God is indeed merciful, but also just. Therefore, 
His justice requires that sin, which is committed against the most high majesty of God, be also punished with extreme, that is, with everlasting punishment of body and soul. So we focused on that last line previously. Now in this third point, we'll look at the fact that God is indeed merciful, but also just. Also just. Also just. Does God forgive and forget? You hear people say that a lot. God has forgotten all of your sins. God just forgives and forgets. Well, how we use that colloquially in English would be completely inappropriate and blasphemous to ascribe to God. God does not simply forgive and forget. Or I've heard people explain justification this way. It's just as if I'd never sinned. And though that's helpful, justification is much more than that. What, what that describes is expiation. Our sin is wiped away. It's expiated by Christ's blood, the sacrifice. Justification is much more than just as if I'd never sinned. Now you're just a blank slate. Far better, you are now justified legally in his sight and seen as righteous and holy and good and pure. You're seen as the very righteousness of Christ, as we'll look at. But God's mercy must remain just. What was that, that foolish, foolish man? Stephen Furtick. That child, a babe in Christ. He said that God broke the law when he forgave us in Christ. Oh, how moving. That sounds great, doesn't it? Sounds great to the devil. A devil rejoices in such a statement that separates God and makes him as wicked as the man who said it. What is true is that God upheld his law in forgiving sinners. For if he did not uphold his law, if he was not also just, there is no salvation. There cannot be salvation if God is not just. His mercy must remain just. He cannot shirk his justice for his mercy. Today I'll be merciful. That's called Allah. That's the God of Islam. Capricious. One day saves you, the next day damns you. The next day saves you again, the next day damns you again. You never know. There is no fatherly love with him. Such is not the God we know in Jesus. He's a fatherly God who is both just, good, and merciful. He does not simply forgive and forget. The Puritans talked about the divine dilemma. You will find the divine dilemma in the book of Proverbs. The book of Proverbs, turn there. Chapter 17 and verse 15. The divine dilemma. Proverbs 17, 15. Here's the divine dilemma. Proverbs 17, 15 says this. He that justifieth the wicked and he that condemneth the just, even they both are abomination to the Lord. It's an abomination to justify the wicked. What does the New Testament say over and over? That the wicked have been justified by God in Christ. So this appears as though God kissed his law goodbye to kiss his children hello. But that's not what happened. So what, this is a dilemma. How, how does this work if the Bible says that the wicked are justified? <clears throat> this great dilemma is solved in the person of Christ, where justice, wrath, mercy, and love all meet. If you turn over from there to Romans chapter 3, verse 23. <clears throat> Romans chapter 3, verse 23 through 25. Paul says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. So all have sinned are wicked. Yet, those wicked are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Then it lays out how that happens. To redeem is to purchase back out of slavery, to pay a price for that you can bring it out, to take back, to purchase back. That's what redemption means. And then verse 25, possibly one of the most important words in the New Testament and thus in the scriptures says, whom God hath set forth to be a mercy seat, a propitiation through faith in his blood. 
now a lot of modern translations want to change propitiation into one word that you just explain to your people like I'm doing right now or, or learn on your own into a four-word sentence that you still have to explain all those words. I think the NIV 2011 translates it as a sacrifice of redemption. So an unbeliever or, or a, a young believer, a babe in Christ, is going to see sacrifice, I need that explained to him, and redemption. A sacrifice of redemption. Or you could just leave propitiation, a very important word in the scriptures, and explain it and learn it. <clears throat> so propitiation means that he took upon himself the wrath and put forth the grace and the righteousness that is his to us. That's what a propitiation means. It's a mercy seat. Where an exchange happens in the Old Testament. The mercy seat where they could draw near to God by that lamb. By that lamb. And now, behold, the lamb of God, which taketh away the sins of the world. Which taketh away the sins of the world. Whom God set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood. So in Christ, God is both merciful and just towards us. So to flesh out that word propitiation a little more, flip over to Galatians 3, since our catechism points us there anyway. Galatians 3, verse 13. Talking about that curse. Verse 13. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of God, from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. A quote from Deuteronomy. Cursed is everyone who hangeth on a tree. So Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. Being made a curse for us. That's how the divine dilemma is solved. That's what propitiation means. And that's how we are justified. Christ became a curse for us. The blessed one became the cursed one. That the cursed one might become the blessed one. Through him and in him. And now we live to him. That's the gospel. He took upon himself the wrath which we deserved. He took upon himself the curse which was met out to us. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. How is it that he gave his son? He gave his son as a propitiation through faith in his blood. He gave his son by becoming a curse for us. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, you don't have to turn there. I think you see the clearest demonstration of how God solves this divine dilemma. For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. God made Christ to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So as we've talked about before, we now as believers stand before God not in our old state, in Adam, in our original sin or our actual sin, in our depraved state, but we stand before him as the righteousness of Christ through faith. That we might be the righteousness of Christ. What comfort this gives us. What bold assurance. And what a rebuke to us. When we sit and dwell on our sins. When we sit and bring before God all of our sins time and time again. Look, look, look. When he sees them no more. He sees Jesus Christ when you enter into his throne room. The righteousness of Christ. He looks upon you and says, My beloved, in whom is no blemish. In whom is no blemish. My beloved son, upon whom my favor rests. That's what he sees. So ask yourself, how dare you bring in, tell yourself, how dare you bring in your sin again. Confess it. And then, Grab the baby, Jesus. Grab the Son of God, incarnate, for thee. Dying for thee, bleeding for thee, drinking down the cup of God's wrath for thee. 
Bear him up in your arms. Take him to the throne of grace. And the father will love and accept those who come to him with his son in their arms. God's wills and shalls are wills and shalls indeed. And God will save all who come to him in the name of his son. That whosoever believeth on him should not perish but have everlasting life. Whosoever believeth means those who are believing. Those that are believing when they come to him. The believing ones when they come to him shall not perish. Thus believe. 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 Receive Christ. Why will you hate God and yourself so much as to neglect to come to him through his son time and time again? That is to the unregenerate. And you can plead that with the unregenerate. Do not so hate God as to refuse to come to him and receive grace and mercy and love. This is our great comfort, that the divine dilemma is solved and the Son of God Born, live, living and raised, dying and raised for us. Born, living, dying and raised on our behalf. And now interceding for us at the right hand of the Father. He stands on the right hand and intercedes. His blood stands before God as a constant witness to who we are. This is great hope. This is great comfort. So, question one, we can ask again. Question one, what is thy only comfort in life and death? Answer, that I, with body and soul, both in life and death, am not my own, but belong unto my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood hath fully satisfied for all my sins and delivered me from all the power of the devil. And so preserves me that without the will of my heavenly father, not a hair can fall from my head. Yea, that all things must be subservient to my salvation. And therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life. And makes me sincerely willing and ready henceforth to live unto him. That is comfort, Christian. That is comfort. Looking at sin can sometimes... Be difficult. But we understand our desperate, miserable guilt so that we can understand the grace and live in gratitude. And that is where we will be for some time in the catechism following. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, once again we come before thee, we thank thee. Lord, I ask that thou bless this word to my heart and to the hearts of my hearers. Lord, give us the strength. Give us the faith to love thee, serve thee, know thee, to praise thy son, that thou, thy will would be done in our lives and on earth as it is in heaven, O Lord. We would live by the power of thy Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, pray these things. Amen. Amen. John Mosby.